crackdowns on corruption in the Philippines and Vietnam, international discussions about Myanmar, and Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim's state visit to Indonesia. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is January 12th, 2023. On today's show... For the international community, whatever positions are taken really will not be a departure from any of the previous administration's positions. So I don't see any major changes as far as our foreign policy is concerned. That was Trisha Yeo on the new Malaysian government's expected foreign policy priorities. We're excited to kick off our first episode of the new year. First, though, the headlines. Today to help me read the headlines, we have Margot Garcia in the studio. Margot is a former intern with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS and currently works as an analyst at C4ADS. Welcome back, Margot. Yeah, glad to be back. Thank you for inviting me over. Did you do anything fun over the holiday break? Any New Year's resolutions you'd like to share? Yeah, um, I went back to California to see my family. We made our own mezcal-flavored eggnog, which was interesting. I don't know if I'd recommend it, but um, yeah, for New Year's resolutions, I'm finally going to be trying to learn Mandarin, which should be quite good. Um, And Otherwise, I just want to get more done on my reading list this year compared to last year. All great things. Um, I'm definitely envious. It was very cold in D.C. over the break. Well, let's dive into the headlines from the last few weeks. It's 2023, so out with the old, in with the new? At least that seems like what the Philippines is doing. On January 4th, the Interior Secretary of the Philippines urged all colonels and generals of the country's national police, almost 300 officers in total, to resign after an investigation found that a few had been involved in the illegal drug trade. Secretary Benjamin Abelos said it was the, quote, only way to make a fresh start, end quote, for the police force, which gained international infamy for its role in carrying out former President Duterte's violent anti-narcotics campaign. Since then, the national police chief and acting defense chief have both resigned. The military chief of staff was also abruptly removed by President Marcos Jr. in what appears to be a purge of factions loyal to former President Duterte. And a similar crackdown happened in Vietnam before the holidays. On December 22nd, the Vietnamese Communist Party's Central Inspection Committee recommended that the entire foreign ministry be disciplined for misconduct in organizing repatriation flights during COVID-19. To date, almost 40 people from across six ministries have been arrested. Officials who were reprimanded or expelled include officers at the Vietnamese embassies in Malaysia, India, Japan, Angola, and Russia. According to the Ministry of Public Security, officials extracted exorbitant fees from Vietnamese citizens stranded abroad during the pandemic, and each of the almost 2,000 repatriation flights earned $85,000. Wow, that's almost, let's see, $170 million in total. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to stop there. On December 30th, the National Assembly voted to remove two deputy prime ministers from their positions, including former Foreign Minister Pham Binh Minh. This is the first time since 2017 that such high-level officials have been ousted. What do these expulsions say about party politics in Vietnam, Karen? Well, Margot, it's pretty unusual for a member of the Politburo, like Minh, to be removed outside of the National Party Congress, and analysis suggests that the removal of both deputy prime ministers had been planned for at least several months. But this is only the latest in a years-long campaign to tackle graft, which has been part of Vietnamese Communist Party chief Nguyen Phu Trong's legacy. Trong had warned before that corruption could put the party's legitimacy and Vietnam's reputation as an attractive place to do business at risk. Minh's successor will definitely have big shoes to fill. He served as foreign minister for almost 10 years from 2011 to 2021, and it'll be difficult to replace that kind of experience. 
I want to shift to Myanmar, though, which is past due for an update. A lot has happened since the holidays, but let's start with the United Nations vote. On December 21st, the United Nations Security Council adopted its first resolution on Myanmar in 74 years, demanding an end to the violence in the country, as well as the release of political prisoners. It also urged the junta to take concrete and immediate actions to implement ASEAN's five-point consensus. That's right. And 12 nations voted in favor while Russia, China, and India abstained. The Security Council resolution came only days after the UN General Assembly blocked the junta from taking Myanmar's seat, which will continue to be held by a representative appointed by the former civilian government under Aung San Suu Kyi. Both were major blows to the regime's quest for international legitimacy. The day after the UN Security Council approved the resolution, Thailand hosted senior junta officials and regional leaders to discuss the crisis. While the Thai foreign ministry framed the meeting as complementary to ASEAN's efforts, the move undermined the bloc's strategy of isolating the junta until it made progress on the five-point consensus. The meeting also demonstrated existing fault lines within ASEAN on the issue. Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam all participated, while Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines abstained. Critics have argued that by engaging the junta, and not the opposing national unity government or ethnic armed organizations, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam are legitimizing one side over others. And the junta didn't stop there. The following week, it concluded its closed-door trial of Aung San Suu Kyi by issuing yet another prison term, bringing her total sentence to 33 years. Convicting the former civilian leader paves the way for the junta to install senior general Min Aung Lang as president in the next national election. Unsurprisingly, that final round of sentencing drew international condemnation. The situation in Myanmar has also drawn leader-level focus from Indonesian President Joko Widodo and Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim. Anwar arrived in Jakarta on January 8th for his first state visit since taking office in November, highlighting Malaysia's strong relationship with Indonesia. After the leaders' first meeting, President Jokowi, speaking on behalf of both countries, echoed the UN resolution and urged the junta to implement ASEAN's peace plan. The meeting signaled bilateral alignment on the issue, as well as Indonesia's readiness to urge the implementation of the five-point consensus as the ASEAN chair for 2023. But if the junta continues to ignore the plan, it will call into question whether ASEAN can resolve the issue. And that will continue to be an internal debate that ASEAN struggles with, but at least there was concrete progress on economic cooperation. The two leaders signed eight memoranda of understanding, covering everything from supply chains to financing to energy. The countries agreed to press the European Union to reverse course on winding down palm oil-based fuels by 2030. As the world's largest palm oil producers, Indonesia and Malaysia share a stake in protecting their valuable export market. Finally, Malaysian companies delivered 11 letters of interest to the Nusantara Capital City Authority, the agency responsible for developing Indonesia's future capital. Anwar reiterated the private sector's interest and commended the project, citing its regional economic impact. There's a through line between the two issues you just mentioned, Karen. The palm oil industry and development of Indonesia's new capital face criticism for the same reason, deforestation. The EU policy bans imports from palm oil companies that fail to show that their supply chains don't exacerbate deforestation. As for Indonesia's new capital, Nusantara's ground zero lies in the middle of Borneo's rainforests. Environmental groups have criticized the plan as it would intensify deforestation and disrupt an extremely complex and biodiverse area. But if Anwar's visit to Jakarta is any guide, Malaysia and Indonesia are plowing ahead on both fronts despite the criticism. That just about wraps up the headlines for this week. Margot, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Up next, more on Malaysia's new government under Anwar with Trisha Yeo. 
Happy 2023! Welcome to the first episode of the year for Southeast Asia Radio. I am Greg Poling, still uh, unbelievably director of the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Even more unbelievably, I'm still joined by Alina Noor of the Asia Society Policy Institute, who has uh, decided to join us yet again for another podcast. Alina, thank you so much. Good to be with you again, Greg. And today, uh, we're going to start off the year talking about Malaysia's new government, one of probably the most high-profile issue we didn't get a chance to discuss before we took uh, a break for the holidays. And to do that, we're joined by Trisha Yo. Trisha is the CEO of the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs in Kuala Lumpur. Hi, Trisha. Hi, Greg. Hi, Alina. Thanks for having me today. My pleasure. And uh, I am joining from D.C. Both Trisha and Alina are joining us from Kuala Lumpur. So thank you for starting off your morning this way. Let me provide a bit of a scene setter uh, for the D.C. audience who are just getting back from eating and drinking too much over the holidays and might not remember exactly what happened in the latest general election in Malaysia. So we had uh, the election called by then Prime Minister Ismail Sabriyakob under, I think, a bit of pressure from his own coalition, which maybe we can get into. Going into the election, I think the the general sense was that UMNO, the United Malays National Organization, and, and their Barisan Nacional Coalition were set to do pretty well. They had done well in a number of by-elections last year, which is one of the things I suppose it helped convince uh, UMNO that it was time to push for this election and try to regain power in their own right for the first time uh, in years. And that's not at all what happened. So of the three coalitions, big coalitions that went in, UMNO's Barisan Nacional got creamed. And the two leaders end up being Pakatan Harapan, or, or PH, led by longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim, and then Perikan, Perikatan Nacional, or PN, uh, led by former Prime Minister Muhyiddin Yassin. Both came out uh, with large seat numbers, but not enough to independently form a government. So uh, PN, Perikatan Nacional, came out with 74 seats. Pakatan Harapan came up with 81. So both in a position to form a government if they could get coalition partners. You then had a hung parliament for a bit, some horse trading, and eventually Anwar Ibrahim managed to bring his uh, longtime bet noirs, the UMNO-led Barisan Nacional, into coalition government and was then joined by several other smarty, smaller parties, including the Bornean parties in Sabah and Sarawak. So after telling us all that he had the numbers to be prime minister uh, seemingly every election for two decades, Anwar actually had the numbers to be prime minister. And here we are with an Anwar-led government, something I think a lot of people maybe thought was never going to happen. So assuming I didn't get any of that wrong, uh, Trisha, what are our top takeaways from this arguable sea change in Malaysian politics? Thanks for very accurately and concisely summing up uh, what happened in the election. It was a very highly anticipated one, not just because it came at the back of two, three years of political uncertainty, but also because the prediction was, and it came out to be true, that there would be no single coalition winning outright a majority, and therefore there would need to be a lot of this negotiation and horse trading, which actually did happen. What was unexpected, of course, was that uh, eventually Barisan National, which as you say, was creamed and you know it had its worst performance ever in history, um, eventually decided to go with the Pakatan Harapan, that's Anwar's coalition, as opposed to the coalition they were already in coalition with prior to the dissolution of parliament. And, uh, you know, some of the factors that led to this were including, um, number one, the fact that the Agong, the king, 
had called for a unity government, which Mohidin's party or coalition, Perikatan National PN, did not want to take up as an option. And uh, second, it was also during those few days of very shaky, unpredictable results that the parties in Borneo, Sabah and Sarawak, openly stated that, okay, you know, they would go with whichever choice the king made um, and whichever one was most likely to form a majority government. So there you have it. Key takeaways from this election, of course, number one, Anwar Ibrahim, who was always, you know, at some point, going to be known as the prime minister in waiting forever, but that has happened. So I think the international community, particularly who is, you know, well uh, aware of Anwar's various career achievements and so on, that might be interesting for the international community, number one. Number two, however, there are certain, you know, downsides or, or perhaps shadowy trends that took place in the election, which we do need to unpack as well, which is that the race and religious rhetoric really was played up even more so this election campaign than ever before. And there has been already a lot of commentary about the polarizing sentiments and trends that we've seen where the non-Malay community seems to have gravitated towards the reformist Pakatan Harapan coalition and uh, the Malay majority has also, you know, after abandoning Barisan National with its various corruption scandals, leadership crises, also has gravitated towards the Perikatan National. Now, we don't have the final figures on this yet. I haven't seen actual analysis based on um, the actual data yet, but that's from the preliminary analysis. And so these polarizing tendencies, uh, you know, they're not healthy for Malaysia, and there suddenly seems to be this awareness that Malaysians need to study the background uh, and the makeup of the Islamic Party past, which did the best in this election. So they are the single biggest holder of seats as a party. So they form the lion's share of Perikatan National's numbers. And so I think going into the new year, it's going to be really important to understand what are the motivations of supporters of the Islamic Party and the larger coalition PN, and how is this going to change the way um, parties behave and change the way the government behaves in catering to their needs, bearing in mind that there are also six state elections coming up this year. So I think I'll just leave it there for now. So, Trisha, a number of firsts, right, with this recent election. One, of course, we've talked about the fact that this was Malaysia's first ever hung parliament, which was eventually resolved after a few days. And then secondly, of course, this was the first time that 18-year-olds were allowed to vote because previously the majority age of 14 was 22. And there's been a lot of talk, a lot of commentary about uh, the youth vote and how that impacted these recent elections. And it goes somewhat to the ethnic and religious rhetoric that you were talking about on social media in particular. And there was a lot of debate about the TikTok effect versus the Twitter effect versus the Facebook effect. Can you unpack for us what this all means? I think, yes. Well, firstly, I think as a, as a hung parliament, that was really interesting um, from a constitutional point of view. Because if you recall what happened in the Sheraton move and the formation of government back then in 2020, March 2020, there has been a lingering and yet-to-be-resolved question over how governments are actually determined. 
because the constitution is quite silent on the matter. It only merely says that if the king is uh, satisfied with the majority that a particular member of the Dewan Rakyat or the parliament possesses, then that person commands the majority. So the process of getting into who actually commands the majority, that has never really been debated publicly. Um, I think as long as the constitution continues to remain silent on the matter, that will continue to be an unresolved issue, which, you know, some people might question. So I think I'll just leave it there. On the second point that you mentioned on the UNDI 18, the youth vote, again, uh, a very highly anticipated election because of that, right? There were just uh, so many new voters coming in very unpredictably um, as well. Not sure what their leanings were. Social media definitely played a role. I was just, I, I mean, in one of the articles that I wrote after the election, I tried very hard to unpick how much was actually spent by Perikata National on TikTok. And among the social media platforms, I think TikTok is notoriously, you know, non-transparent about where sponsorship, you know, for, for certain content is being, where it's coming from and how much is actually being paid. Whereas for some of the social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, there have been some transparency demands, right? Over, okay, how much is a video being sponsored and so on. So it's really hard to tell, but essentially what came out from TikTok was a lot of content that also tended towards, well, Malaysia, we have a Sedition Act, which not, not necessarily do we agree with, but I think a lot of that content bordered on seditious material. And, uh, you know, after the new government took over, the new minister has tried to place pressure on TikTok to remove some of this content, uh, which could be quite insightful in nature when it comes to race and religion. Now, the youth vote, um, yeah, let's talk about that a bit more because, you know, I think it goes back to a bigger question of the lack of political education in Malaysia. So you're giving an opportunity to millions of new voters from the age of 18 who have never been exposed through the schooling system or through any kind of systemic way to understand truly what the, well, maybe a little bit on the system of government administration, but politics is not part of our education. And you're going to be learning this. And if you're going to be using content from TikTok um, as an educational material, then I am actually quite worried about how this has influenced these young voters. The content that was produced by Perikata National was a lot more savvy than what you saw being produced by Pakatan Harapan. I was not a TikTok user myself, but you know, I think... I, like many others, had to jump on the bandwagon just to see for ourselves what material was coming out from there. So, yeah, I think right at this moment, we can say that social media was influential, um, but in a really superficial way, which is actually something that people who care about democracy need to be worried about. Because if we're talking about political education through 30-second sound bites on video, which really doesn't tell you very much about the promotion of democracy and transparency as a whole, then it is quite worrying because how does that impact upon the idea or the very concept of the democratic process and you know the right to vote and so on and so forth? Well, before someone accuses me of misinformation, I just want to clarify that what I meant was previous majority age of voting is 21. Clearly, I'm still in 2022, which is why I mentioned 20, uh, 22. 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts, both of you, Trish and Aline, since you're both uh, in Malaysia. The narratives internationally seem a bit confused here, right? We, we've got these competing narratives, and I think the West is having trouble wrapping their heads around it. So on the one hand, like, yay, I'm more prime minister, and we're going to ignore how he got there. We're going to ignore getting into bed with BN and whether or not that's pure cynicism. Um, and so is there some kind of, you know, move toward a more progressive, multi-ethnic uh, Malaysian ruling coalition? But at the same time, you have the so-called green wave of, of Paz being the biggest winner by far in the election. And how much should we be, I guess, how much are um, folks in KL worried about whether or not this represents a more permanent or, you know, long-term polarization of politics between a increasingly Malay ethno-religious coalition led by Paz, really, um, but in, in the form of Periketan Nacional versus this other, you know, looser coalition where DAP, the Democratic Action Party, gets all, you know, for all intents for the all Chinese Malaysian votes. There is no competing vote bank for for Chinese Malaysians. Maybe the Sabah and, and Sarawakan parties continue to to see that voting with a pause led block is not in their interest, but but you just you lose the ability to have any kind of middle ground, I suppose. Whereas I guess the counter narrative to that that I've heard is, well, maybe it really wasn't about pause. Maybe it was about discussed with Umno, and pause is the only Malay party that had a competing um, framework, you know, competing institutions across the country in Peninsular Malaysia to whom people could flock. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they like Paz's message so much as they just can't stomach Omno anymore. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, for me, I absolutely agree. And I, this was something that I was cautioning as well just after the, the election results rolled out because there was this sudden fear and panic about this green wave, this green tsunami that was very much talked about in the media. And precisely, I said that just as the just like how people voted for different reasons in the 2018 election for Pakatan Harapan. People also voted against AMNO for very different reasons or for Perikatan National in this case. Barisan National has been at an all-time low. Its president is embroiled in its, his own corruption scandals, um, still in court. And at the time of the election, there was no single leader in Barisan National who could unite the ground, the way that, you know, previous very strong leadership was able to do. So you're right that people could have just swung away from them because they were unsatisfied, dissatisfied with what was happening there in Barisan National. So you mentioned the middle ground, right? This is actually, the middle ground in Malaysia is what many, many political parties are trying to capture. Because on the extreme ends of the, on one or the other side, people have pretty much made up their mind. Those are hardcore supporters of either PAS versus PH. And if you look at the numbers, actually PH has also maxed out their supporters. They're not going to be able to get any more seats, even if an election happens again tomorrow. You know, they've maxed that out. So the middle ground is really important. And that's where Barisan National used to occupy. And at the moment, with a weak Barisan National, they have not been able to recapture the imagination of the middle ground. The hope was, I think, coming into federal government now. That's how they can rebuild, they can strengthen themselves. But it hasn't really happened, and I don't think they will have time to do that before the state elections take place this year. So I think that's something to, to observe, uh, that 
if they're unable to regroup sentiment from the ground, uh, from the very, very powerful warlords at the bottom, then what you're going to see is a greater erosion even of Barisan National, which is representative of the middle ground, which means greater erosion of the middle ground. And there's really not much time for them to recapture that. And if that happens, then we're seeing, you know, we're seeing this year and the state elections moving in a even an even more um, polarized pattern. This may actually determine what politics looks like for the next few years. Uh, but maybe Alina has other thoughts as well. You know, I'm, I'm be really curious to know how large this middle ground is because I think there's an assumption that the middle ground is the rational, sane populace that will prevail in the end or should prevail. And I think we see this also in the United States. But I don't know just how large this middle ground is in Malaysia and in, in politics in Malaysia as well as in other places. So much is dependent on issues and geography and socioeconomic groupings. And this middle ground, I feel, could differ from state to state. Trisha, I don't know if there are any figures, stats about how large this middle ground is in Malaysia. Writ large, I'd be curious to know about it. Yeah, that's interesting. And the other thing to also say is that, you know, what, what Pakatan Harapan really possessed was the moral ground, right? Because that's what they've been championing all these years. They've been talking about good governance approaches. And I think we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that they were forced to bring in Barisan National into their coalition, represented by none other than their president, Zahid Hamidi, who has been given a position of deputy prime ministership. And in a way, that has sullied the ability of PH to claim that moral ground, especially for Malays who were supportive of PH prior to this election on that ground. So that's just something to put out. I think the non-Malay vote will still constantly be in support of PH because the alternative they view is a worse alternative. But I think that that really is the concern. Like for the Malays, what advantages, like what are the additional, what's the value add um, that PH can bring to the table? And also bearing in mind, there are other social economic issues that we haven't even talked about yet. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of other things I'd like to talk about as far as the kind of coalition politics and what these look like in the future. Um, you know, the shellacking of Muda, the youth party, what role the East Malaysian parties can play now. But I think for purposes of Southeast Asia radio, we should probably talk about what the new government means for foreign policy uh, and maybe revisit the domestic politics piece later. So do we have any idea what this new coalition government is going to look like when it comes to foreign policy? And is it going to be any different than what we've had over the last two governments since the 2018 elections? Alina, this is your forte. You want to start us off? I can, I can join in. Look, I think the fundamentals of foreign policy will continue. And we've seen this to be true over the last few years, even over the course of the last 50, 60 years. You know, Malaysia's foreign policy will continue to be, or try to be at least independent, uh, non-aligned, all those usual words that you hear coming out from the foreign ministry. And I think even at the highest leadership level, you know, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim has sought to try to keep a balanced approach between the major powers, the US and China. I think he's known for his ties to long-established ties to the United States. And so in recent statements, uh, you've seen him try to speak more about China and be a little more uh, welcoming of China. 
And so I think we'll continue to see this balanced approach uh, with his government. Trisha? Yeah, I tend to agree. I honestly believe that Malaysia, given its particular geopolitical position and economic trade position with other countries, it doesn't quite matter which coalition comes in or which prime minister comes in. We will always take an approach of balance interest between US and China. The PH manifesto, among the other manifestos, does attempt to you know, revive Malaysia's role in the Southeast Asian region, uh, revive its position as being a neutral country, but also playing a leadership role. So I think there are some, there is a recognition uh, of ASEAN. I mean, at least they mentioned something about regional blocks, you know, not much about US and China relationships, but Anwar himself is savvy enough uh, as a prime minister. He's familiar with the dynamics of what takes place externally. The foreign minister is someone I think not many in the international community know, but he was the former chief minister of Perak and he is well-spoken. I think he's an interesting selection, certainly as foreign minister. I don't know what his own priorities are going to be, uh, but I think for the international community, whatever positions are taken really will not be a departure from any of the previous administration's positions. So I don't see any major changes as far as our foreign policy is concerned. Should we read anything into the fact that BN was given most of the external portfolios, defense minister, foreign minister, and so on, and the you know mostly domestic portfolios are the ones that PH kept for itself and shared with other coalition partners? Is it just a matter of the fact that no PH politician has ever had these portfolios, and so BN's got all the experience? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I didn't think about it that way. But I think at the moment, the priority for any government in Malaysia is actually domestic politics. I mean, unfortunately, that is the reality. I think not just in Malaysia, but many countries, right? Like grappling with their, their own political situations in the post-pandemic era, grappling with the economy. It's the political economy that drives positions and how incumbency is actually going to matter um, the foreign portfolios are good, and I think it is helpful that Barisan National has that experience. Um, they can draw from their decades' worth of experience, but the domestic political arena is really the main game that parties are playing locally. So I believe that is why they would like to pref they prefer to have that stronghold domestically. Alina, any other topic we should touch on, or do you want to close it? So. Trisha, we talked a little bit about kind of the balanced approach that Malaysia is expected to play under this government. Interestingly, um, Anwar Ibrahim also has reputation or used to have back in the, his heyday his credentials of being this Renaissance man and is able to straddle the, the, the Islamic world and the West, whatever those two definitions mean. I think it's too early to tell how this will all play out. I think it's interesting to watch how Malaysia will or will not play a role in other parts of the world apart from the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, particularly the, the Middle East or West Asia. Do you have any insights uh, based on domestic politics, how you know, Anwar's reputation in the Islamic world might impact on Malaysia's standing, straddling the so-called Islamic world and the so-called West? Yeah, that's an interesting question because 
I think his current appeal in Malaysia is actually not among the Islamic types. Despite the fact that he has that background and history, I mean, he, he was birthed out of the Islamic movement, right, as president of uh, ABIM, which is an Islamic youth movement in Malaysia. Uh, that's where he was able to display his youth leadership qualities and then handpicked to join UMNO, like this is really all back in the day. I think the Islamic trends locally have just moved in different directions. And I don't think he has been able to, despite his ties with the Middle East, and that is something that he continues to display evidently uh, on the international platform. I think the first press conference that he took, he took a call from Turkey's Erdogan, <laughs> you know, as the very first thing, even before the press conference started. So he does display those credentials quite publicly. But locally, yeah, I, I don't have the sense that he's actually been able to bridge that with the local Islamic trends. And things have moved quite rapidly, right? Decades after he was president of ABIM, uh, there are other sorts of Islamic movements, some more conservative than others, that I'm not sure he is able to speak to at the moment. Uh, that might change. I mean, uh, he might flash those credentials again. And I think it would be interesting to see how he attempts to make that bridge uh, between democracy and Islam. I mean, both things that he has really stood for over the last decades. But whether or not this will resonate with the local Islamic movements, that's really a question that I would still have. Well, uh, Alina, Trisha, thank you both for helping us think through the implications of Malaysia's fifth prime minister in five years. Hopefully the only one we have to talk about in 2023 for a while, but I'm sure we're not done talking about the new government uh, on Southeast Asia Radio. So uh, thank you again for having me start off 2023 and thank all of you for listening. Again, looking forward to a strong year here. Thank you, Greg, Elena. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We'd love to hear about what topics you've enjoyed learning about and what you'd like to hear more of this year. So feel free to write us at searadio at csis.org and we'll be sure to answer any questions and feedback you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us too. Our producer is Marla Hiller and our intern is Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. I'm Karen Lee. And I'm Margot Garcia. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.